Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Caitlin Beckett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Magnew. Hi, it's Grant Haggerty. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gasherin and you're listening to Not the Foodish. Yep. Yes, it's time for the second podcast of Not The Footy Show for 2016, and it's great to be back. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. Well, John, we are looking ahead now to what's coming up in 2016, and the biggest event of the year has to be the Olympic Games in Rio. There's still some concerns over whether certain areas of the games are going to be ready on time like there was meant to be the warm-up golf tournament was meant to be held end of november uh the golf course wasn't ready in time so that never took place there's still with i think it's the rowing area the the bacteria in the water is a major issue uh so there's still going to be a few headaches there but i think come the games everything will fall into place i know that you and i were fairly negative before the last olympic games over whether the last Olympic Games, sorry, the World Cup in uh, Brazil. Brazil, and saying, so, but they came together, they got it together in time, and it seemed as though it ran as a fairly successful tournament. Hopefully, the last-minute scramble will work again for the Brazilians. Now, what do you think? Because the chef de mission for Australia came out, and I wrote a piece on the blog, www.notthefootyshow.com, saying, predicting the number of medals that Australia are going to win and also highlighting the sports in which they're going to win those medals. So it was saying that cycling, we're going to win the most gold medals, followed by swimming. And look, I just think these athletes are under immense pressure as it is. To get to an Olympic Games is one hell of an achievement. Everyone would love to be able to say they've done that. To then heap this burden on certain athletes or certain sports by saying they will win these medals... I think is just wrong. Well, it's interesting because we're always told it's about competing. It's not about winning. And these people in these positions will tell you that too. Oh, yeah, the Olympic Games is great because of this, this, this. Then why open your mouth and say what you did? Well, we know why. If it's why, all about because, competing. But we know why because it's, they've now got that winning edge program that the Australian Sports Commission brought out. So funding was based on sports that would give us a return yeah. of medals. Yeah. So now all funding is now based on whether we'll win medals. But to it's, me, that's, that's, that's one thing. But it's just wrong to now come out because I'm sure you've said to that program, this is what we're expecting or this is what we want for you to get that funding in four years' time. But do not turn around and say, we're going to win five medals in cycling, four of them are going to be gold. And I'm being hypothetical there because I don't actually have the exact figures that they came out with. I can tell you exactly why a public service stroke bureaucrat would say those things because he's lining him up, aligning those sports up and telling them exactly what's going to happen if they don't perform. Hey, they've told them now, you better get five medals, mate, or your funding goes. That's what the subtext to those sorts of comments is, especially from bureaucrats. And that's the problem with having bureaucracies in sport is because the bigger the bureaucracy is, the further removed it comes from the core of what that business is supposed to be, which is sport. So it's, about, it's about being involved. It's about participating. Winning is a byproduct of participation. Not the other way around. So do you agree then that maybe a lot of these sports have to start looking and staying, you know what, we're not going to go for government funding anymore. We're going to be self-sufficient. I think for too long, governments have, have sucked sports in with the funding. They've used it as a carrot. 
And now you get, Healthways is a classic example of that. I mean, Healthways, oh, we'll give you this money, we'll give you this money. Oh, that's great, let's sign up with Healthways. And next thing you know, you're stuck with a whole series of rigid rules that if you don't follow, you have your funding taken away from you. That, I mean, I can tell you right now, if you're at a local club, sporting club, that's got their little kitchen going, how many apples do you think they'll sell and how many buckets of chips do you think they'll sell? Yeah, and muesli bars. And I mean... You got to cater for what your audience wants. But that's, and if your that's, audience that's wants the story chips, of business, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you serve chips. The consumer determines what you sell. Absolutely, and to put these arbitrary uh, barriers in front of sports to, tr- and you know, you can't have a sponsorship from this person because they do that. Oh, unless they happen to be say the AFL and they're sponsored by McDonald's, that's all right. Oh, we can still give the AFL money. And let, don't, don't think that they don't give them buckets of money every year, the federal and state governments. A, biz, a multi-million dollar business taking our tax dollars from sports like floorball. Yeah, look, I, I think it's very sad. And I think the other thing you've got on the other edge of that, which you kind of touched on there, is if we look at how many politicians around the world have used sport Absolutely. to try and win votes. Oh, for sure. I mean, the blackest day in Australian sport. How many people have been charged since the blackest day? Uh, Sander Earl, who's been absolutely run, had, you know, run around the paddock. Uh, one bloke who came forward and admitted guilt, and they still can't deal with his case. It's just appalling. It's politicised anything, and this is the result you get. That's why there is no room for politics in sport at all. Although there are a lot of politicians involved in sport. But anyway, that's why a lot of things don't get done. Only, but only we'll... in the good seats. No, I'm saying a lot of the administrators are politicians in that they won't make decisions, but they'll hang on to their jobs by being politicians and never answering questions. That's what bureaucracies do. The other thing that's come up recently, and uh, I believe that poor old Anna Flanagan, our former member of Not The Footy Show, got a little (laughs) bit ambushed and is uh, she may have got caught up in, in a little piece where she was misquoted. And that is that there may be, and there isn't yet, a media ban on athletes in the Olympic Village. Now, I've spoken to athletes who've been to Olympic Games, athletes who are still current, who they were saying they actually applaud that because they said it's a unique environment. It's the only time in your career where a media person can't come to your hotel, they can't walk in the village. You are alone as athletes, as coaches, and you get the chance to socialise, to interact, talk to the opposition. And, of course, at the end of the event, there's a big party where, you know, you don't want photos taken, judging by some of the stories I've heard. <laughs> Look, I'm not a social media person. No, I don't Facebook. I don't Twitter. I don't have any of that gear. Um, so my, my perspective on it is going to be a little bit different to, say, someone like Anna, who is of the age group where it's been normal for her since she was old enough to really use those sorts of that And also technology. she has a lot of followers, which as a result of that results in sponsorship deals yep, yep, because exactly. she has them. So if you look at it, Anna is a business within herself and her social media status, along with other athletes, gives them bargaining power with sponsors and earning power. I think, though, what the athletes have to understand is what gives them that following and all the follow-ons from that is their performance on the field. Now, you can go to the Olympic Games and 
text and Twitter as much as you like and Facebook your, your way. And if you don't perform, then all of that, that following will disappear very quickly after the Olympic Games. You know, it won't hang around. The athlete's only responsibility is to perform. That's the, all they have to do. All of that other stuff comes from performance. And that's why I think, you know, surely you can give it up for two weeks to focus on that performance. Uh, and the other thing that comes into that is there are certain sporting bodies, like there are teams who don't actually tweet. They have someone outside, like a they subcontract yeah, someone yeah. to do their tweeting on their behalf. So again, you think, oh, well, where does that sit? Because the athlete's going to have to feed the information to that person to be able to get them to tweet. Look, I, I think, you know, to me, you know I'm a traditionalist. I'm not much into the tweet thing. Uh, but I, I don't, I think the village should be sacrosanct. Like I always think a dressing room should be sacrosanct if you're playing in a team game. Like if you're playing cricket for Australia or, or for Western Australia, no one should be allowed in that dressing room except for the coaching staff and the players unless invited in. Like it is, no, TV cameras should never be allowed in there because players do, and athletes, I think, deserve somewhere that is theirs. What about if you're really hungry and haven't eaten all day and need a sandwich? Aren't you allowed to go into the rooms then? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. But it's, it's something that athletes are going to have to grapple with in the future. And, that's, it, and it's going to be a line between um, your image and your performance. And if your performance isn't up to scratch, your image doesn't mean rubbish. It doesn't matter at all. won't matter. Anyway, the Olympics still a long way off, but looking forward to, to it though. Yeah, I can't wait. I think Is Usain be... Bolt going to go three? Oof. I mean, that will be the big story at the Olympics. Will be if Usain Bolt can go three. That would be a absolute an absolutely remarkable achievement if he was to do that. It'd be phenomenal. It would be unprecedented. Yeah, and you can bet there'll be even more questions asked about whether he's clean. If he does achieve it. But hey, he's been tested more than any other athlete and what? so far has not tested positive. What's clean in modern sport? Well, that, well, not being picked up by the dope testing as having any illegal yeah, I, substances I'm, in your system. I, I, I still struggle with blokes that need an injection at half time to come back on. Yeah, I, I think cortisone is, you know, shouldn't be. Surely a, it's performance enhancing. It is because you wouldn't get out there without it. it yeah. Or, or the, then you'll have the argument, well, it's not letting you perform at a level above your ability. You still can only perform at that of the level of the yeah. ability you had before. But I, but it is performance you know. enhancing because without that injection, you wouldn't have been able to perform to the level at of all. your ability. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Kieran Govers, you know, lovely guy, plays for the Cookerboroughs. But at the recent Hockey World League, he was having to have a pain-killing injection in his shoulder Ugh. before every game. He was saying he could hardly feel his shoulder because he'd had an operation on his collarbone, and then there was a bit of calcification on the bone that was rubbing against his rotator cuff. And so as soon as he got back, he was in hospital. They've gone in and cleaned it up. But, you know, there was a guy that was in agony, uh, couldn't actually really raise his arm very high without, you know... I know that feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, look, I tore my rotator cuff. I know how bad it is. Yeah. His shoulders aren't something you want to hurt in a hurry. But just looking at hockey, I mean, we've got the Hockey India League about to get underway. And obviously, I'm heading up there to do the commentary. But the one thing, John, uh, 
rules? Why do people change the rules? Hockey, I think there are some rules need changing, and I'd like to see them actually do. I was talking to Terry Walsh in Malaysia, the former Australian. He was the Indian coach. Uh, he's coached in the Netherlands as well. You told him he was my favourite player, didn't you? I, I didn't actually. Oh, no, sorry. Oh. But he was saying in all his years, and I found this astounding, he said as a player, as a coach, and I think he said he'd been involved now 40 years in the game, he goes, he's never been consulted once on any issues to do with the rules. And he goes, I don't understand that. He said, because the rules, if they sat us down, players, coaches, umpires, he said, television broadcasters, if we got everybody in a room for a weekend and went through the rules, I'm sure we could simplify it and make it so much easier that everybody agreed this was the way it should, do, should be done. Which is what, of course, Rugby Union did. Got a, uh, a scenario for you. You get hired by, say, Hockey International, whatever, and they hire you as, um, you know, working in the rules department or whoever handles those sorts of things. They say, okay, Ashley, that's your job. Have a look at the rules and blah, blah. We'll come back in six weeks' time and have a chat to you. Six weeks' time, they come back and they sit down and they say, so right, Ashley, what, what, what rules have you come across, blah, blah? Well, actually, nothing. I think everything's fine. You'd be out the door... And sacked. In fact, they'd be asking for their money back. And once again, it's this bureaucratic idea of what to do about sport. Now, these are people, oh, well, we've hired this bloke. We'd better do it because we've hired him. And, and he said we should do this. Instead of just sitting back and, you know, the course the guy's going to tell you to change the rule because he knows if he doesn't come up with something, you're going to sack him. But he, you, know, you know, like at the, at the international level now, games are 15-minute quarters. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Junior Asia Cup which was a qualifying tournament for the Junior World Cup, which will be held in India at the end of 2016, where the tournament will be played in 15-minute quarters and there will be umpire referrals. The Junior Asia Cup was played 35-minute halves, no referrals. And the reason was, and this again, you go, how can this happen? Is the 15-minute quarters is only a regulation, it's not a rule. So it's not actually in the rules. It is a regulation. So you don't actually have to play it. So, for example, if Australia is playing a test series here against India, Pakistan, whoever, if, if suddenly Hockey Australia goes, do you know what, we'd rather play 35 minutes, they can. There's nothing anyone can do. And you go, how can that happen? You brought out an edict that you wanted all internationals to be 15-minute quarters, but it's only a regulation, and it's up to the governing body. <sighs> yeah, I... I I always, uh, on these sorts of occasions, refer back to the, the, the famous Furphy in cricket, that the batsman is given the benefit of the doubt. And every time, you know, you hear people use this line when contentious decisions. Oh, the batsman's got to be given the benefit. No, he doesn't. Where in the, where in the cricket rule book does it... Laws of cricket. As laws well. of they're cricket, rules, sorry. I, my mistake. My very bad there. <laughs> where in the laws of cricket does it state that the batsman gets the benefit of the doubt? It doesn't. Doesn't anywhere. So it's another one of these sort of cases where people think they know what the rules are, but no one ever actually bothers to go and read them and look them up. And, oh, yeah, that's right. Just, just on the hockey, I mean, I mentioned the Hockey India League because the rule change or that is going to be there is that it's going to be two goals awarded for a field goal and then if a pen, one for a penalty corner. But if the defender deliberately prevents a goal from a penalty corner, obviously illegally, uh, then the stroke will be worth two goals as well. 
Now, we're saying, how are we going to explain? As a commentator, I'm going, how am I going to explain this to a viewer? I'm saying it has to be, it's worth two points. Because if you're having two for a field goal, one for a PC, then it surely has to suddenly be points rather than goals. Because you can't say they got one field goal worth two points and one peak corner worth one. But then they got a penalty stroke that was worth two goals as well. But also the other thing, and I feel sorry for the umpires on this, because they now have to interpret whether the defender deliberately stopped a goal. Now, that's the defender's job, to deliberately stop a goal. So I mean, those, there is a rule in hockey already. You can't go outside of the rules to stop a goal. It's yeah, a strike. If the ball's going sense. at the goals, yeah. if, the, if it's a shot on goal and as foul is committed, it's yeah. a strike. So what, what's the, what did they do? I don't understand. What, points, goals? Tell you what, why don't we get a couple of sticks and put them a yard each side of the goalpost, and if the ball goes in there, we'll call them points. How's yeah, that sound? that's a very good idea. I don't know why anyone's never oh. thought of that. How about posts going straight up as well, and if you get it over the goal, you, but between the posts, you get a point as well. Why do they have to bugger eyes around with everything? Leave it alone. Hi, I'm Nicholas Jacobi from Germany playing for the Delhi Wave Riders. You're hearing Not The Footy Show. Now, the other thing, just moving on to another sport that's uh, changing its laws, is rugby unions doing that, which... Uh, oh, but that's a yearly thing. Well, <laughs> they, it's that a quadrennial now? law review process continues. So there's new laws coming in in the Southern Hemisphere from January the 1st and July the 1st in the Northern Hemisphere. So let me get this right. In the Southern Hemisphere, when you throw the ball, it's got to spin counterclockwise. But in the Northern Hemisphere, you've got to go clockwise. And, and I'm not going to go through the rule breakdown, but you've got the tackle and the breakdown of where the rules are going to change again. And, and exactly as you said, you've got this bureaucracy where you feel you've got to do things. I thought the Rugby World Cup was pretty good the interpretation of the rules was pretty good i don't think there was really any need to change anything at the moment well if i think back to the two contentious decisions from the whole the two most contentious decisions from the whole world cup none of those rule changes would have changed it would they? i mean the, the only one you would say is that the referee in the scotland australia game has the Gilbert. right at, yeah at the end of a game or in a situation like that if he wants to make sure he gets the right decision, he can refer upstairs. To me, that's the only rule you would really change. And, and even then, if you take the interpretation that he took to the rules, the referee, he made the right decision. He did make the yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. And he couldn't, he couldn't refer. He wasn't no. allowed to. But I think no. in an instant like that where a place in a semi-final or a place in a quarter-final or a place to, to move up the world rankings is at stake and it's the final minute of a game, and if the, the referee is... And again, Joubert, even if he had had the chance to refer, may well not have taken that, because he may have been sure that yeah. his decision was right. So we should always say that. But I think if he feels he wants to make sure he's got it right, he should be allowed that opportunity. Uh, we also saw the situation where after England's first game, the media in particular was scathing of the amount of time uh, TMOs took. The amount of time that was spent reviewing. Well, I have that in every sport. Yeah. I think it takes far too. But it was it was obvious after that match and that criticism that they were told to speed things up and not use it unless they really, really have to. Well, I just wish they'd do that in cricket. I think cricket now it's taking like so long. By the time you've looked at, was it a no ball? Then we see it in normal time. Then we see it. Then we got snicker. Then we've got. 
you know, it's just boring. Yeah, and we saw this farcical situation with Nathan Lyon when he walked. <laughs> the bloke walked. Poor Nathan Lyon. He's going to trudge back out there again. But, and, and in some ways, you can't blame the umpire for giving the ruling he did because he's got to be... It, it, the, the umpire had ruled out, uh, not out, and they, they appealed it. Yeah. So he had to be... To overturn it, you have to be absolutely convinced there has to be irrefutable proof that that's what had happened and that's one of the problems i have with the cricket one is that you can have one a piece of action bowler balls ball there's a resulting play you can't have two different results out of the one you know it's either got to be out or not out not oh well the umpire said you're not out even though that be but we you know it's either out or it's not out and there can't be this oil it only the ball only hit half of the wicket so it's umpire's call well how good's the technology? It's going to hit half the wicket. If the technology's accurate, that's as out as anything. If the technology's not accurate, then why are you using it? Well, let me just say, having seen some of the technology in the trucks and knowing that it's computer-generated and that they literally they are putting in there, it is not 100% accurate. Oh, no way. And that, that ball tracker... Oh, that doesn't hurt in that's, that's, Just bin it. I don't oh. like it at all. I, I think it, it can only give you a, up to a point. Like yeah. if, it, if it hits something, that's it. How do it. you know? You can't yeah. know what happens after that. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a game I played years ago where the ball was bowled, it hit the ground, and it did not bounce. I've gone back, to, and it just skidded along the ground, did not get more than a centimetre off the ground. Now, on the TV, they'd have had it bouncing probably over the stumps. Well, we saw the case the other day in the Big Bash where a ball actually hit the stumps. Yeah, the I ball. Saw, actually did see that one, yeah, even it, though I don't watch Big Bash. It, it, it clipped the stumps. Now, the cl- of course, in cricket, you're not out unless the bales come off. You can hit the wickets all day, but if those bales don't yeah. come off, that's it. Exactly. Now, just going back to to the rugby, just quickly before we play the second part of our interview with uh, Peter Paleologus, um, I it's going to be Super 18s this year, and that's going to be interesting. Now, I go back to the early 2000s where in the Northern Hemisphere, the international players were complaining that they were playing too much rugby because obviously their tournaments had far more teams in them. Then they were having to do the tours down under to either New Zealand, South Africa or Australia. Then they were having the Five Nations, Nations. tournament as well. And so they were just going, it's and just... And the Heineken Cup. And yeah, and they were else. just saying, it's just too much rugby. I worry that this Super 18s, with the travel... Because don't forget, they've now got to go to Japan, although some of Japan's games will be played in Singapore. Uh, and you've got South Africa, and you've got Argentina now. Uh, it's going to be a huge thing, and I, I just wonder how it will affect South Africa, New Zealand, and Australia internationally. And I wonder whether this will be the thing that actually closes the gap between the Northern Hemisphere teams and the Southern Hemisphere teams, when you take into account that at the Rugby World Cup, all the semi-finalists came from the Southern Hemisphere? Uh, it's a logistical nightmare. I don't think anybody would deny that. And, and there must be a lot of work that they're going into. I mean, what time of the year they play Super Rugby from about February on? February in Singapore? Hmm. Would it be any worse than playing rugby in Perth in February? I don't know. Or Queensland, for that matter. Um, uh, be similar, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting. It's a hard one because you want to see the sport grow, and that's how sports grow is by expansion. Yeah. And 
the idea that Argentina Argentina should be you know playing in a some sort of Super Fourteen competition, I think, has merit. It sounds like a good idea. Maybe it's going to take two or three years to get down the track to let some of these issues work themselves out. And unfortunately, by then, you're not going to be able to kick the Argentinians out, are you? No, and I mean, mean, you've got to feel again for the island nations because once more they've been overlooked. I mean, we keep going on about it, Mm. but uh, I think that's very sad. But something, yes, had to be done, whether this is the right way, whether this was a grab for the marketing dollars in Argentina and Japan... Well, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. From, but from I Argentina's think... point of view, they need some sort of competition. Yeah, I mean they're they're isolated in South America. Who are they going to play? Brazil. Yeah, Chile. Canada. <laughs> yeah, they need the competition. They they're a proud and good, strong rugby nation. They they need to be encouraged. Um, yeah, look, I, I just think it's going to be very interesting the toll it takes on the players because Super Rugby is a tough competition you know what surprised me about super rugby is some of these uh northern hemisphere players don't drift down and have a crack at it during that four year you know if i was maybe eddie jones might even do it maybe he might say to some of these guys it's another three years away to the next world cup go and spend a year playing super rugby son yeah okay you're on the verge of the england squad you probably wouldn't make it for 12 months anyway you're a good player we've got our eye on you Go and get some experience. Like the county cricketers coming down to Australia yep. and playing in the off-season grade cricket here. Alex Stewart, classic example. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Martin Johnson, of course, played in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, played rugby there and, you know, he could have qualified for New Zealand. Uh, but he actually said he learnt more in that time there at that early point of his career. Now, would Australian super rugby... So, uh, sides be prepared to take on players from the Northern Hemisphere? Would there be a directive from the ARU saying, you will not sign English rugby players? Yeah, there may well be. Oh, it's a skullduggery sport, that one. It is indeed. Anyway, uh, we've been yabbering on as usual. If you listened to the first podcast, you would have known that we caught up with the Australian Football Agents Association President, Peter Paleologus, and he was just telling us about the changes that came into effect in the FIFA system for licensed player agents in April 2015. Now, it's a fairly long, detailed interview, uh, and we didn't really want you to miss out on any of that if you're an up-and-coming player or the parent of an up-and-coming player or even a club because it does affect you in terms of the money that you're owed from A-League clubs or clubs overseas. And Peter is basically part of a group which is trying to maintain the professionalism because anybody now can be a intermediary for a player you do not have to have a license and there are certain people that are very concerned about that because there are obviously still contracts to be signed legal documents to be checked to make sure that players get the best deal so here's the second part of that interview with peter paleologus one of the things you touched on earlier was you were saying about player compensation. And again, I'm sort of a little bit confused in that if the club is now responsible and the player are responsible for the paperwork, who's responsible to make sure that the player compensation for a player, you know, from the age of 12, their youth development fees actually get back to those clubs? Okay. Um, basically, we, we have a situation where... Um, Training comp- you're talking about training compensation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Training compensation is payable um, um, up until the age of 23, 
for a player's career from 12 to 21 years old. Now, the, the, the team that pays the training compensation is the buying team. For instance, if a player is at Perth Glory, um, 17-year-old or 18-year-old or, um, or uh, uh, Bayswater or one of the clubs there or Perth, and then decides to go to England or go to the Netherlands, then there's a rate that FIFA has. There's the tables, the different um, categories, and that the buying club pays the training compensation, um, and that training compensation will go through the FFA and the the national. Uh, sorry, the state federation, which in in, in this case will be WA. But it's a very will- long-winded process because there's a lot of clubs I know in WA are not receiving this money. Um, and they're saying, you know, they just cannot get answers out of people. Um, the, the process, I mean, it, it, it's it, the process is pretty much there's two there's two ways in, in training compensation. Um, the FFA, I mean, they, they need to contact over their state association, but then the FFA has the process where it looks after the training compensation and then the, disperses to the clubs. However, also a lot of players, a lot of younger players, because the training company can be a considerable amount of money, um, which we can talk about 100, 200,000 euros here for a player at 17, 18 because of the rates that FIFA charges. So a lot of players or agents, but the players are trying to get waivers from their clubs so they can waive uh, um, the yeah. training compensation because um, it's, it's two ways you can see this. One is obviously the club's trained someone, they want to get compensated. But then a player who's untried, a European club's not going to pay... 150, 200,000 euros for untried players. So they would want a waiver, maybe based on the fact that, and if the player does achieve as a professional, then there may be something paid. So you can waive training compensation. There's um, that's allowed. The um, but really, clubs need to pursue it with their state association via FFA. When a young, because the FFA. Um, is the one that will provide the ITC, the International Transfer Certificate, because without that, a player cannot move overseas. So, in, um, and one, and part of that is checking the training compensation arrangements. So, there shouldn't be a situation where a player gets released um, to a club overseas without the training compensation situation being clarified. That's the way it should be dealt with. I mean, I'm not saying that. There's things that the clubs are not getting paid, but that that should be the um that should be the way it done because also there's a process called FIFA TMS the transfer matching system is used a lot for international transfers and paperwork has come a long way and things have to be matched up and part of that is obviously training compensation as as well transfer fees and all that so if there is a club out there that's not getting it that they should raise it again with the state body. And then FFA, so, especially if they haven't waived the, any amount for a player. What about players that are signing from NPL clubs into the A-League? Is there still the training compensation due to them from the A-League clubs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's regulated by the FFA. There's a small that's paid. There's also been a change with that with the FFA Cup. Uh, new mature age, because a lot of F, um, NPL players... Um, it's hard to get an opportunity in the A-League. Um, and so they've brought in, because we've obviously got a salary cap with the A-League, they've brought in uh, a mature age of PL players to play in the um, A-League um, outside the cap with a minimum wage as long as that player's in PL. But yes, um, um, A-League clubs have to pay an amount to 
the MPL club. It's not a huge amount. It's not the European amounts, but that's that's regulated by the FFA. Right. I mean, it's, it's a very, very complex area. And what would be your advice to any parent who comes from outside the sort of football family and their son or daughter has got the talent? Is How do they find out who to speak to where they can get the advice and the sort of advice and knowledge that you've given us today? Two, um, two aspects. One, um, they need to get onto the FFA website. There's a page. Um, it's it's basically near where the statutes regulations are. They they scroll down the lower of the website. They there is intermediaries. They can click on there. There's a list of all the FFA listed pre-lodged intermediaries in Australia. So there's a whole array of names there. That's the first thing. So they know who sort of um, been um, who's a, what basically listed as an intermediary. And they've got the contact phone numbers. That's the first thing. Second thing, word of mouth. Deal with other players, players who have got a um, intermediaries or agents. How good their agents are. Um, do a bit of research on the internet. You'll see um, re- different reputations of agents. Then we've also our association. We've got 14, 15 agents who all were previously licensed under the old regime, so they know all the requirements. They can have a list, have a look through that list. Now we've got a Facebook page, Australian Football Agents Association. We've also got um, a website. Um, if they just put Australian Football Agents Association in, a website should come up. They can do a bit of research. But um, it's obviously there's a lot of people can act as intermediaries now, and there's a lot of people into players and parents' ears, and it's quite um, you know it's it's quite difficult. But uh, it's word of mouth. Um, looking at uh, who's complying with the regulations, so you look at the Football Federation Australia website, um, you Google search, make sure individual google their name to see if there's anything that comes up that's untoward um and then also um have a look at our website or our facebook page to see who are the agents that are listed there um, i'm not here to promote um any agents but basically that's some of the checks parents and players should do um also a league clubs deal with a lot of intermediaries there's always they can always get a uh, know about reputation of certain through their peers or the clubs so there, there are quite a few things they can do um, to just check the reputation. We will get asked this question about whether players should go overseas or go through the A-League. Um, there has been some research that a lot of players who do go overseas come back quite quickly. It's quite, a, you know, it's very difficult. There's also the view that players should go through the A-League, but there's also limited opportunities in the A-League. Um, so um, there's, you know, there's basically... A situation where um, players can choose the overseas pathway or the the um, local pathway. But in Australia, I will say this: that we have a high percentage of foreign players in the A League. About 23.5% of players in the A League are foreign players. And in terms of younger players, um, we are basically um, not that high comparatively to um, other countries. So in terms of um, players have been given opportunities. There's been some research um, in terms of under under 21 players um, and how many minutes under 21 players have played in, ter- uh, in Australia for A-League clubs. And there's some good research showing that certain clubs, for example, Brisbane and Newcastle have a high proportion, other clubs a bit lower. So the opportunities are here in Australia, they're also overseas. It's really a case-by-case basis. But the key is education 
information, find out who the good agent is, deal with them, ask a lot of questions, ask about what deals they've done, who they've promoted, who the players are. Those sort of questions will give you a bit of an indication who to deal with going forward. And I think, Peter, though, the key with that as well is sometimes the most attractive deal isn't going to be the best deal for a young player. As you touched on there, they want to be playing as much first-team football as possible to yes. progress their career. Yes, yes. The first deal is probably the most important deal. The first professional deal is, a, is the launching pad for most players. If that deal is good, whether it's for a, a second-division Danish side or you get an opportunity in A-League, um, or you get an opportunity um, in the um, League One in England, or maybe third division Spain. If, if that, if that's, if if you do really well, that's your launching pad. It doesn't always have to be the, you know, you're in. Very few players get, you know, into the Bundesliga first division, um, Premier League, unless uh, Australian players, unless they've progressed for a lower team, or they're really well in the A League, um, like Aaron Moy at the moment, who's really starring and in demand so the pathway the first contract is very good important because it's the launching pad for your career you have a good coach you get first team opportunities you can build there's no point going to a club where you're not playing you're on the periphery um you don't get the stats up and you lose that momentum that's why the first professional contract is very important I mean, we've seen for a player's career. We've seen quite a lot of Australian players in recent times go over to big name clubs, and they're all heading back within about a year. And to me, that's not good for Australian football. It's not. Um, it's not good. But it's always a case by case basis. Um, some play, Some some um, players, ex players, coaches, media pundits will say best to go overseas and develop. Um, others will say come through the A-League pathway, but it all comes down to one thing, opportunity and luck, uh, right place, right time, having the right people mentor and coach you and get give you that opportunity. So actually, there's quite a few factors. Some players can come through A-League and go into Europe or Asia. Other players have to go at 16, 17, which is very difficult because if you're going to go to Europe under 18, there's only three ways you can um, actually, um, 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 play overseas when you're a minor, and one of the and the main way for Australians is besides an EU passport is your parents relocating for work for um, football, and that's been very strict um, because we had recently had the FC Barcelona case who were recruiting young um, players from around the world, talented players, and they were sanctioned by FIFA. They couldn't register players for two transfer windows. They were reprimanded a $450,000 Swiss franc fine for warehousing young playing talent. Uh, so when someone young goes overseas, because um, they have to be go there for non-football reasons, parents relocating. Um, so, but as I said, the pathway is twofold. It can be A-League, and the A-League's fantastic launching pad, but can also be overseas, right environment, right opportunities. No point being on the periphery, though, because you're not going to develop. Peter, once again, thanks so much for your time, and I'm sure we'll talk again because there's so many issues there that uh, we could talk about for a very long time. But great Perfect. catching up with you today. Thank you, Ashley. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is Joe Cortez, international boxing referee from Las Vegas, Nevada, the boxing capital of the world. 
listen to Not The Footy Show. It's a knockout. Check it out. Well, John, it's been great chatting again, and I certainly hope that those people who listened to that interview with Peter Paleologos uh, have actually got some information out of that. Interesting now that A-League clubs have to pay $10,000 to NPL and State League clubs if they take a player. And also the very interesting thing, which I think a lot of parents need to be aware of, is that no intermediary or player agent can take any money off a player or the parent of that player before the player is 18. That's a really big... uh, Yeah, there'll be a lot of... um Sorry, agents going around, especially in this town. I think there'll be a few parents going, hang on a sec, I gave so-and-so some yeah, money. Exactly. That's uh, been going on in this state for a while. So I think if people do want more information, uh, you can go, as Peter said in the interview, to the Facebook page, the Australian Football Agents Association. Get in touch with them and they'll be more than happy to give you any advice if you have a son or a daughter who is looking for a career in professional football. We hope you've enjoyed it. We've enjoyed having a chat and uh, we'll be back with another podcast shortly. Thanks, Ash. See ya, we'll be back next week.